Well, greetings and good morning to you. Happy Lord's Day. Glad that you're here uh, with us and glad that you are here with us uh, virtually, those of you who are uh, watching on a screen. A special welcome to those of you who may be new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, either uh, here, uh, present, or uh, online. Uh, thank you for your attentiveness. Uh, we believe that you have found Covenant Presbyterian Church because you've been directed so by God's sovereign hand. Welcome. We're continuing in Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 1. We're all the way in verse 2, zipping along. Uh, but uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 2, is where we will begin. Little theologians, thank you for being here. Happy Lord's Day to you as well. This is a passage about the wilderness, but I don't want you to draw a picture of the wilderness. I want you to draw a game that you know very well. The game is called Follow the Leader. Follow the Leader. So any picture having to do with following the leader, that's what I'd like for you to draw. Because I want you to be grateful that uh, we follow our leader, Jesus, into the wilderness. And because we follow him into the wilderness, well, that makes everything different about our lives. Follow the leader. We'll begin our passages from Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Would you please join me, first of all, in prayer? Well, Father, we say to ourselves, we're delighted that you'd speak to us. We understand that there is an aspect of our own hearts, and there are many here, who are not altogether delighted that you speak. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would change our hearts, that we would be uh, more truly, more purely delighted that the Maker of all things, the Giver of the Gospel, that you are speaking to us in your Word cause us to delight in it and be transformed by it, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of our Lord. 
you know, if you call me bright and early in the morning, the day may be very sunshiny. It wasn't this morning, but the day may be very sunshiny, maybe warm, beautiful, the birds are chirping. But in all honesty, if you call me at 6 a.m., I will not be cheery. It's not the hour for me. I'm not at my best in the morning. Those who live with me know this to be true. If you want to find my best, you should try later in the day. I'm just not my best in the morning. And this passage has us parked in the wilderness for the entire passage. Everything in our passage takes place in the wilderness. And in the wilderness is not where Israel looks her best, right? And it's not where we would look our best. The mere description of the life of John the Baptist in this passage, I think all of us, I'll just speak for myself, I find that undesirable. Now, I'm not my best in the morning, and we're not our best when we're hungry, and when we're tired, and when we're frightened. And yet, in this passage, what we see is that we see that Jesus voluntarily, willingly, goes into that wilderness that he might do something there on our behalf. He's the one who travels into the wilderness to meet the righteous requirements of God. And he does that for you and for me, for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who travels into the wilderness to meet the righteous requirements of God, and he does so for our salvation. I want to say three things about the wilderness. I want to talk about the attitude for the wilderness, the kind of attitude that's appropriate for the wilderness as is taught in Scripture. So the attitude for the wilderness. But then I want us to shift gears and consider the perfection in the wilderness. Attitude for the wilderness and perfection in the wilderness. And at the very end, believe it or not, I want us to find in this passage the domestication of the wilderness. Attitude for, perfection in, and domestication of. We'll spend most of our time at the very beginning with the attitude for the wilderness. Mark takes us to the Old Testament here right at the beginning, and he wants to show us that the gospel is about a person, about Jesus. Remember how he opened, beginning, good news, Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's the beginning of his gospel. And here he shows us that from the Old Testament, that the gospel is about a person. And he quotes Isaiah. Mark tells us he's quoting uh, Isaiah. But by quoting Isaiah, he prepares us by first quoting Malachi. There's actually two Old Testament passages in this quote. Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40. Well, first, the setting of Malachi chapter 2 and 3. You don't have to turn there. But if you were to go and look at Malachi chapters 2 and 3, you would find that the people that Malachi is addressing are actually rebellious. The people that he's addressing, they are actually wearying God. They're making God weary. A remarkable expression. And they're making God weary by saying that God, he's not there. And since God's not there, we can do whatever we please. We can define what is good and what is evil because, after all, God's not there. And no surprise, this wearies God, says Micah. And Micah 3.1 that which Mark quotes, says this, I am coming, and I send my messenger in order for you to get ready for me. I'm coming, and I send my messenger 
God says that to a people that are wearying him, a people who have rebelled against him. That's the first quotation. The second quotation, the one he's really after, is Isaiah chapter uh, 40, verse 3. And again, if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 40, the uh, entire chapter, what you would find there is not necessarily a people who are rebellious, as in Malachi, but a people who are desperate, desperately longing for the comfort that can only come from God. And they don't feel as though they have that comfort. And Isaiah 40 verse 3, that which Mark quotes, tells the people that there is a preacher especially for you who will cry out in the wilderness and lead you to that comfort. There's a preacher for you, and he'll cry that out, leading you to the comfort that you seek. So for Malachi, the people are rebellious, and for Isaiah, the people are seeking comfort, don't believe that they have it. This is pretty complex imagery, these two quotes together. To the rebel, John the Baptist says, get ready, get ready looking at Malachi. And then to the desperate, Mark says, well, get ready. Get ready. And both of these images uh, put you in a hurry for something to come. Uh, Keep in mind that Mark mentions the word immediately twice in our passage, and he's going to say immediately several times. That's what Mark is known for. He seems to always be going quickly. And both of these quotations from Malachi and Isaiah, they're saying, get ready. Hurry up, something is about to come. That might be heard differently uh, by the rebellious than the the one who is seeking comfort. But get ready. And then John appears. And what Mark tells us about John is that he appears in the wilderness. These rolling badlands between Judea and uh, the Jordan River to the east. About 22 miles of just rolling, dry arid land, land filled with rocks and snakes and wild animals. But John, who appears in the wilderness, he's not only baptizing there. Other scriptures tell us that the uh, range of the ministry of John actually extends far north, uh, not just 20 miles from Jerusalem, but actually 45 miles from Jerusalem, a large region. And so he's baptizing in the River Jordan here in this passage, but certainly he doesn't only baptize in the River Jordan. He's ranging around in that wilderness. And not only uh, is he in the wilderness, it seems as though John is wearing the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? Mark, he's so creative as he tells this story. He's wearing the wilderness. His diet is honey and locust, but John's clothing is the dry flowing robe of camel hair, and it would flap in the breeze were it not for a leather belt. But aside from that, he seems to have nothing else. He's in the wilderness. He's wearing the wilderness. And it seems as though, because wilderness plays such a large role in what Mark says about John, that he's actually championing wilderness life. He's one of those kinds of people. He wants you to enjoy this wilderness life or something about it. And we know that uh, John has been in the wilderness for most of his life. This is where he lives. We might picture it rather comically as someone who's off the grid and wants you to be off the grid as well. Well, this is John. And the wilderness, you see, is his career. John was born in Jerusalem, raised by Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he was raised in such a way that he would be the kind of young man who would abstain from most of the luxuries of this world. Strong drink, but other luxuries as well. 
And John was unique because when he was born, he was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, God tells us, for a reason, that he might pursue a career of turning the hearts of disobedient people back to God. Luke chapter 1 tells us what John's career is. Your career is to turn the hearts of the disobedient back. That's some kind of career, isn't it? And then to do that in the wilderness, a life of austerity. You know, Elijah did this. Elijah did this during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, over a hundred years before Isaiah began to write. And John would seem to be the man doing that in his own era. Elijah turning people to God and John turning uh, his own people to God. He ministers right in Elijah's territory here in the wilderness. The wilderness is his career. But the wilderness also seems to be his chapel. I know this is a funny expression, but John, uh, John is a preacher. Mark's very clear about that. He uses two, uh, two times. He tells us that he is a preacher using a very dramatic word. And as he's a preacher, the wilderness seems to be the chapel or the architecture of his preaching ministry. I mean, think about the architecture here as the architecture of the ministry of this pulpit. We want the words from this pulpit to be God's own words, that they would be uh, revered and heard as majestic words. There's something about the architecture that ought to echo that. Well, the wilderness is John's chapel. And when the Hebrew people were in the wilderness for 40 years, it was a time for them to remember who they belonged to. You remember that as they're delivered from Egypt. They had nothing then. They had no land. They had no cities. They didn't even have great feasts because God provided a very simple diet for them. Delivered from Egypt into the wilderness. And what did they do in the wilderness? They listened to the word of God. They worshiped God at the tent of meeting. They were served by Aaron's sons and they lived lives of austerity. And what it seems to, seems to be happening is that John is using the wilderness as this great chapel, the, the background imagery for his preaching ministry. John is actually bringing back this imagery of the wilderness. The wilderness is his career, and the wilderness is his chapel. Because he's a preacher. And we're actually told a couple of things about his preaching ministry. And let's not skip over what might sound obvious, but you not see it in this passage. John's preaching Christ. John is preaching Jesus. You see what he does in this passage. He relegates himself to a lower position, saying repeatedly that Christ is better in every way. Verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He's preaching Christ, how Christ is more important than he is. But not only is he relegating himself, he's actually relegating his entire ministry, his entire career, a career that he had at a very young age. This is not something new for John. He's saying that his ministry takes a lower position than the ministry of Jesus. Verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We should understand this is better in every way. John is not at the end of the production line. John is at the very beginning. 
Jesus is at the end of that production line. John's work is preparatory. He's preparing a people. And Jesus will be the one who actually brings them to completion. You see, he's preaching Christ. But there's actually another token of his preaching ministry that Mark tells us about. He's preaching repentance. Look at verse 4. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is why Mark tells us that people are actually coming to John. They're coming to confess their sins, verse 5. He's preaching Christ. He's insisting upon the superiority of Christ. And he's preaching repentance, warning people to change. And people come to him, confessing their sins. Now let's pause here for a moment. And let's ask, how does the preaching Christ and preaching repentance fit together? We might, as we explore this, how does preaching Christ and preaching repentance fit together, we might also be exploring, and it would be unavoidable uh, for us to miss it, uh, exploring the fact that he is in the wilderness, and the wilderness has something to do with him preaching Christ and preaching repentance together. You see, John is addressing a Jewish people, not Gentiles. He's addressing a people who would know Elijah, and they would know the wilderness of the Exodus in Numbers. They have rebelled against God themselves, just like in Malachi's day. They would understand that. And they have forgotten the promises of God to comfort and care for them in all circumstances. And they would know this as well. They're coming to John that they might confess their sins. They know that they've rebelled. They know that they've forgotten. And they need to remember uh, God's judgment. He will judge the rebellion. And they need to remember God's presence. He will be with them to comfort them. They need to remember that. And presumably they do remember that because they're coming to confess their sins. I've rebelled against God, but I know that he will judge me. I, I have uh, sought comfort elsewhere and have refused to accept his presence. And I know that he is actually present with me. And they go to John, and they confess their sins. And John, he is preaching not merely repentance, he's preaching Jesus. So that somehow, it's impossible to tell how, to what degree... But somehow, as they come to John, confessing their sins, knowing that they have a rebel heart, knowing that they are not uh, accepting or receiving God's comfort, though he offers it, because John's preaching Christ, he's saying that Jesus, he is that judge. He is that one who will punish rebels. And he's saying that Jesus, he is that presence. He is that giver of the comfort that you seek. And as John preaches, he's asking them to not merely repent, but to acknowledge God's closeness. And he does that with the imagery of the wilderness. In the wilderness, God came close to his people. All distractions are pushed away. They have absolutely nothing. There's no desire for political gain because there's nothing for which that political gain can grab hold of. There's no land. Their occupations are gone in the sense that they have no land to farm. But they don't need to because God provides food for them. And God is close to them. 
His tent is within their vision. They can walk to that tent. They can be with the servants of God who minister to them, the Levites. He's there preaching to them with the words of Moses, who is their leader, showing them who God is, but how to live before him. You see, what John is doing is he's inviting people to come out to the wilderness to actually taste that God uh, has forgiven them and to taste that God is present with them. And both of these things happen uh, because uh, of Jesus Christ. Remember, the gospel is a person. But really what he's doing is he's demanding that Jews stop playing games with life. And we need to hear this from John as well. Stop playing games with your life. Stop giving your lives to idols. Stop giving your lives to your appetites, to your desire for status. Stop giving your lives to your careers, to money. Stop giving your lives to earthly hopes. Silly, inane uses of time, these. Stop. Remember. And turn. And the only reference to John's ministry of baptism outside of Scripture... We find uh, this uh, quote. John was known for exhorting the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows, and piety toward God, and so doing to join in baptism. You know, John's really preaching a definitive reassessment of our lives. To deny God in your wilderness is death. God, he is your food. To deny him is to give up food, to find some other means of sustenance that's better than God. That is your death. God, he is your sustenance, and without him you die. Even if your sustenance is your family, even if your sustenance is good godly planning for the future, there's nothing in the wilderness but heat and rocks and snakes and wild animals. You've just fooled yourselves into thinking there's more. Would you leave him? Well, no. And if you won't leave him, if you desire to survive in the wilderness, repent and wash, says John. And then as people come to him, they're hearing him preach Christ, and they're hearing him preach repentance, and they confess their sins. Well, Mark tells us that they're being baptized by him in the River Jordan, verse 5. In Matthew's gospel, John says, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance. In John's estimation... Repentance and the water go together. That those who truly confess their sins, they actually have water being applied to them. Now, this is a very striking feature of John's work, and let me tell you this for two reasons. One is this. Ordinarily, washing with water, the washing of purification, well, that would be for those who were converting to Judaism. Did you know that? Ordinarily, uh, the washing of water would be something that would uh, convert outsiders into Judaism. But his ministry is a ministry to Jews, reminding them of what God said to them in Isaiah and in Malachi. His baptism seems to be a little bit different. John's baptism is symbolizing a reassessment of life, a reassessment of your moral and spiritual center. That would seem to be for people who don't need to be converted into Judaism. And yet, that's, that's really what the washing of water would most uh, automatically signify. 
And so you might think, uh, so that's, that's unusual, out of the ordinary. That's the first thing that's out of the ordinary. Water was normally associated with conversion. The second thing that's out of ordinary about John's ministry is that when someone was washed for purity, it's the kind of ceremonial purity that they would have by washing themselves. And we actually find this all over Scripture. Uh, Aaron and his sons, they wash themselves before they lead people in worship. And then Moses, in uh, Exodus chapter 19, he commands the people to go and purify themselves. And he actually says how it's done, by washing themselves. But John here, is, he's, he's washing others. Do you hear those two things? Ordinarily, it was for conversion, but not in John's practice. And ordinarily, uh, you would be washing yourself, but not in John's practice. Uh, John's baptism seems different than the baptism later commanded by Jesus after his resurrection. Even that baptism uh, seems to be a bit different than what John is doing. Uh, Jesus commands that uh, we would baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a kind of baptism that happens at the very beginning of converted life. John's baptism is a bit unusual, I feel it's appropriate to take a moment real quickly to just let you know that here at Covenant, uh, we offer to baptize infant children based upon the uh, belief of baptized parents. We understand that this is a practice of the New Testament church. We also understand that this is similar to the circumcision of babies in the Old Testament, those babies that were a part of God's covenant family. You may already know that about our church. But we also baptize those of any age who repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ. This is an appropriate expression of their walk with Jesus. Nobody can be a member of Covenant Presbyterian Church without being baptized. Perhaps you knew that, but perhaps you didn't. But just looking at John's baptism here in Mark chapter 1, John's baptism, it feels a little bit different than anything taught in the Old Testament, and it also feels different than the baptism commanded by Jesus for his disciples to perform. But he's preaching Christ, isn't he? And John is demanding confession of sin, isn't he? And he also demands turning from that sin to a new way of life. And he offers water as a picture of forgiveness of sin. And at the same time, he defers to what Jesus is going to do later, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that we need to make much more than that. This baptism is a baptism in which he is signifying that which these individuals have done when they have come to John and they have confessed their sins. And it may be that this is a preparatory picture for the kind of baptism that Jesus would instruct his disciples to do after his ascension. But what we find from this is that the attitude of the wilderness is an attitude of reassessing your life and acknowledging either uh, again or for the first time that God is the judge and that you are a rebel. Acknowledging perhaps again, but perhaps for the first time that you're chasing after comfort and peace will only be gratified, only be satisfied in Jesus himself. And this is the attitude of the wilderness. And I think this attitude applies to those who do not know Jesus and also to those who do. This is the great human need to confess our sin of rebellion against the one true God and to seek our comfort in him and him alone. The attitude of the wilderness Real briefly, what about the perfection in the wilderness? What strikes us is that in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. How remarkable is that? 
This seems to be uh, Mark's uh, indication of Jesus' public ministry beginning. And don't forget that the wilderness was not the ideal choice for the Hebrew people. Remember that they longed to be out of the wilderness and to have a nation like others, even if it meant returning to Egypt. You remember that about the Hebrew people, don't you? But look what Jesus does. He wakes up one day and willingly enters the wilderness. But how can a man without sin come to see John along with those who do have sin and actually confess their sin? How can, how can Jesus come with people like that? And how can Jesus allow John to baptize him when his other baptisms have been baptisms associated with the confession of sin? To be baptized to be pub- is to uh, publicly do something that looks an awful lot like seeking forgiveness. And yet Jesus does that very thing. And this kind of behavior could actually damage one's reputation. The Bible tells us that Jesus, he knew no sin. Peter tells us that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In him there is no sin. Over and over, Scripture tells us that Jesus is without sin. So what then is Jesus confessing before his baptism? That's a thorny text, isn't it? What do you think he's confessing before he meets John's qualification to then submit to John's baptism? Well, he's confessing sin, isn't he? That's what everyone else is doing. But he's not confessing his sin. He's confessing your sin. And he's confessing my sin. In another gospel, when John sees Jesus, what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's confessing on your behalf and on my behalf. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so in submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is actually doing a couple of things. First, he's showing that he has taken upon his own shoulders the sins of others. But second, he's uniting himself to his children in solidarity. He's becoming like us so that he can show us what to do. He submits to John's baptism so that he might lead us through John's baptism. Remember the theme verse for Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is doing is he's actually doing two things. He's taking our own sin upon his shoulders and he's also joining us in solidarity, showing us what we ought to do. And in this way, Jesus is showing himself to be the perfect son of the Heavenly Father. Without saying a word, remember, Jesus hasn't said anything. Without saying a word, he has pleased his Father who says to him, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. (laughs) You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. How many baptisms do you think that John performed before this one? Do you think perhaps 30, 100? Several hundred. I mean, look again at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Perhaps thousands of people were baptized by John. Of those thousands, for how many did God speak from heaven? He is the only one who pleases God. The perfect one in the wilderness, never rebelled, never doubts God's comfort, never doubts God's presence. He delights in the care of God in the wilderness. He delights in the care of God wherever he is. He is perfection in the wilderness. And we see that in in the way Mark does it, just very, very few verses. 
His confession is the one that secures our, our salvation. Your confession of sin actually cannot save you. That should be hard to hear. Your confession of sin actually cannot save you. The energy and the sincerity and the intentionality of that confession, that's not where your salvation rests. And my confession cannot save me. Jesus actually must do this. And in doing so, the Father is well pleased. And the Father is well pleased in you, not because of your confession, but because of the confession of Jesus. This is perfection in the wilderness. And then here's what I'd like to conclude. This is a gritty scene of a gritty fight in a gritty setting, but I think it's the scene of most beauty. Verses 12 through 13 tell us the domestication of the wilderness. Mark tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in verse 10. And this surely is a gift from God who is actually uh, not merely well-pleased in His Son, but uh, Scripture tells us that God delights in His Son. Mark tells us that immediately and almost violently, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus apparently deeper into the wilderness. There's a part of the wilderness that's more dangerous. There's a part of the wilderness that is more fearsome than the wilderness that you see on the borders. And the Holy Spirit drives Jesus there. And he's there for 40 days. And Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And Elijah was on that same mountain for 40 days. And during those 40 days, Jesus is tested by Satan himself. And, and Mark, he, he provides so few details, doesn't he? He doesn't mention a food, but Matthew tells us that Jesus was tested by Satan after having endured 40 days without food. Both Moses and Elijah were on the mountain without food. It may be that Mark assumes us to uh, complete that detail. And Mark doesn't explicitly mention the very words of Jesus, does he? Just two verses, 12 through 13. He doesn't even tell us the number of tests that Jesus endured, whereas Matthew and Luke, they do. He doesn't even mention the triumph that Jesus secures. Matthew and Luke are very clear about that triumph. But Mark, he doesn't. So in Mark, what we need to do is we need to consider the action of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit being with him and the Spirit driving him. And the Spirit being present with him while he is in the wilderness, the deepest, darkest wilderness. And Mark uh, wants us to understand certainly that Jesus was obedient. And he wants us to understand that at the very end of the temptation of Satan and the presence of wild beasts, the angels minister to him. And what we need to understand is that that ministry of the angels are, in Mark's words, a sign of the triumph of Jesus. God is present. God is comforting. Go right back to Isaiah. You remember that for the people of Israel, the wilderness was a time of testing. It's meant to discipline them, to draw them near to God. Luxuries were removed so that they could be close to God. The Hebrew people actually never triumphed over the wilderness. They just survived. They passed through it. They lived on the other end, at least the second generation of those in the wilderness in Exodus and Numbers. But they never actually defeat the wilderness. But Jesus, he does. He defeats Satan in the wilderness. And that defeat is going to be tasted again by Satan at the resurrection of Jesus. And it will be tasted again at the final consummation. But Satan, he's defeated. 
And Jesus, it would seem, he lives in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place in which the people were supposed to be near to God's care. All distractions were whittled away. And Jesus, he seems to be rather content, doesn't he? He's there in the wilderness and he's being ministered to by the angels. You know, in our wilderness, in the world in which we live, We seek comfort all over the place. We seek pleasure all over the place. God's wilderness has a goal of drawing God's people closer to him. What is your goal in this world? What is your goal in the wilderness of the present age? Is your goal to live with God? Is your goal to draw closer to him? Is your goal to be comforted by him? Is your goal to have Jesus? In your wilderness, what makes life tolerable? And what Mark is telling us here through the ministry of John is he's saying that in our wilderness, the attitude of repentance is actually possible. Our sin has been paid for. Our relationship has been sealed through Jesus Christ. And what that means is that in our wilderness, we don't have to chase after those things that might earn respectability before God. He's with us. He's comforting us. And even in our seasons of rebellion against him, we actually can repent and ought to repent before God and expect to be recentered, recalibrated as it were, because God never left us. Our sin has been paid for after all. And so our life is a life of repentance in the wilderness. But also in the wilderness, we can know that the demands of the wilderness have all been satisfied. Jesus is the perfect one who went into that wilderness, the wilderness that was supposed to test us, the wilderness that was supposed to remind us of who God is. Uh, Jesus has completely satisfied the perfect will of God. And he's near to you, and he's near to me in Christ. The perfect one has entered that wilderness satisfying all of God's demands. God knows you, and he knows me. And in fact, what's happened is that Jesus has himself domesticated that wilderness. He's domesticated it to such a degree that we can actually live in this wilderness of the present age, and we can still have God. We have his Holy Spirit with us, ministering to us, caring for us. And we're not the kind of people that need to be baptized over and over and over again. We have his word, and that word is a word that washes over us, and that word is a word that becomes our weapon for the evil one. We have that word. And the wilderness, in fact, has been so domesticated, so domesticated, that Jesus in John chapter 17, when he prays before hanging upon a cross, he prays that God would not remove us from the world, but rather guard and protect us and be with us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God's word. That's the life of the church, the fellowship of the believers. That's a life of prayer. That's a life of repentance. The wilderness of the present age, I want to say to those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, has been domesticated. You can live here because even here you have Jesus. You'll have more of him at his second coming to be sure. But Jesus is the one who entered that wilderness on our behalf and he is the one who has domesticated it for us so that we might live in it and have all of the comfort of God. This is the gospel of Jesus. Next week, 
Jesus begins to preach. Let's pray together. Well, our Holy Father, we thank you for being with us in Christ Jesus. We so love various trinkets of this world, and we are so uh, uh, diligent in seeking comfort from other sources. Jesus, thank you for your patience. Help us to walk in repentance knowing that you have paid the price for all of our sins and that we live here on behalf of your good grace. Thank you in your name. Amen.